Welcome back, Philip K. Dick fans, to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly chronological order. And we are currently working on the stories of 1954. I'm still going through this early bunch of his his stories. Um, I think 1954 might be his most prolific in terms of what he published publishing over around 25 stories in that year. So there's a lot to get through, but we're nearing the end of it. Uh, in fact, today we're going to be looking at at a story published in November of 1954 called Upon the Dull Earth. But first, I want to read a comment made by Richard Fahey. Um, on, it was a comment he made on the podcast uh, for the episode The World of Talent. And if you've been following along, Richard's been kind of blogging alongside this podcast. So he's been really uh, contributing a lot to to the debate, and he's got a lot of great ideas here. He kind of comes at these works in a way quite distinct from mine. So I, I think he really is a, makes a nice contribution to this conversation. Uh, anyways, this is what he writes. Uh, in my last comment on your Medler podcast, I discussed... Gus Dick's fatalism during this period, which works through a series of unalterable default blocks. But I also mentioned a change in the attitude in the next decade that would examine the possibility of controlling personal destiny. I was already it was already happening in this one though, with the principal character's talent to change events in his life. Dick was exploring whether or not the course of human existence could be swayed by the power of free human will or endeavor. Floyd Jones in The World Jones Made was trapped by his precognitive abilities, but the boy, the boy in the world of talent, special power in this one, allows him to manipulate history to alter his timeline. So, yeah, I I don't really disagree fully uh, that this has a more optimistic take than than the world Jones made. In fact, the world Jones made was written after this. I I, I blog I podcasted that one out of order. So I think he's <clears throat> a little bit not consistent. Let's put it that way. He's a little bit not cons- he's he's not fully consistent in terms of abilities and whether they're good or bad, or whether they trap people or they're Promethean. So the the post-human in Dick's fiction can be a Promethean figure. He can be... Now, Prometheus himself is kind of a dubious guy, right? He's a titan. Is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? You know, from the Olympian standpoint, he's kind of a nefarious trickster. Um, but from the human point of view, he, he's creating this um, progress, but in doing so, takes away the mystification of, of the gods. But nevertheless, uh, by Promethean, I just mean... Yeah, they have the ability to transcend human capacity or move humanity to the next stage of its creativity or whatever. So they could be Promethean or they could be like Floyd Jones, rather trapped. And even in the world Jones made, it's not, it could be, it's a little bit of both, right? Because he's got a Promethean attitude, but he can't achieve it, 
right? So that story has the fatalism of the precog joined with the true Promethean mutants, the ones who can settle on Venus. So I think you can't forget the Venusians when you when you look at the world Jones made. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, there's there's I don't see the this this strict kind of break. Like in the '60s, he becomes more optimistic and embraces more personal freedom. I, I think on the issue even of the frontier, he gets more pessimistic about the frontier after after the 1960s. But anyways, okay, moving on to his comment here. It's not surprising then that the government here sees such powerful people as dangerous, but within the bubble of this piece, it is also the seed of what I've said before about Dick's fears of children being malignant innocents who given enough power would think nothing of using it to further their own ends. It happens in Martian time slip where Manfred Steiner has the Austin power to shape the universe even though he is a supreme being, as though he is a supreme being. He is really only playing, but it is a dangerous game he plays. Okay, yeah, I that's a, that's kind of interesting, actually. Um, I I wanted to say more about children, and, and I really should, uh, but I'll come out to it. I I don't. I I think if anything, Dick is anti-Malthusian, and I'm thinking of specific stories like the pre-persons, certainly, but Doctor Futurity, the crack in space, even to a degree. Do androids dream of electric sheep? One of the problems on Earth in that novel is that no one, everyone is ster sterile. There's no fertility, and that makes that kind of a dead place. So a place without children is not a utopia because it's free of malign, uh, malevolent creatures. It's it's kind of a banal dead place. Yeah, I think generally his, if anything, he he likes to talk about how institutions can find and trap kids. He he does it in like James P. Crow. He certainly does it in our friends from Fullox. Is it Fullox Eight? Fullox Six? I, I forget. But that novel, uh, which was written in the in the sixties. Um, so, I, I there are yeah malevolent children from time to time, even in uh, Project Earth, which I podcasted about a couple months ago. There are examples of these children who are dangerous but my institutional an analysis of what dick is saying would lend it more towards seeing ch uh, parents uh, parents and institutions as confining and trapping and limiting kids potentials um, but it is interesting that he does you're right that he introduces these characters who are often children with a lot of a lot of powers and sometimes they change things radically in the world um like john's world is another good example of that actually john's world has a kid who's able to basically undo a war but in so doing so he basically changes the existence of everyone on the planet uh, probably vanishing out of existence as many people by creating a new timeline so anyways back to your letter Dick was well aware of the consequences of trying or being able to alter destiny within his fictional reality about the time he wrote World of Talent, though, in Upon the Dull Earth, speak of the devil, it becomes nightmarish and irreparable. Later in Galactic Pot Healer, though, it becomes the sole means of achieving an objective and is triumphant, though the perseverance of ordinary human beings who also rely on solidarity and craft. Okay, great. Uh, solidarity and craft. You're really trying to use my language there, Richard. You sounded like me for a moment. Um, but yeah, certainly. Um, changing 
these realities often become horrible, um, certainly in a, upon the dull earth. But yeah, Galactic Pot Healer is interesting because it does require sort of this fresh start for all these people. Um, Maze of Death as well. Um, Maze of Death is interesting because you have these people in this kind of eternal loop, but there are the characters are always like given this new start. That's that's how the fantasy in that story begins, right? That they're going to get this completely new start. They're going to go to a new planet, start up a new life, you know, work on this great project. It's almost like the anti-galactic pot healer uh, in a way. Okay, your last paragraph. I'll take up your discussion on colonialism among the other significant themes you speak about on this piece. Dick was obviously and simply against colonialism. He felt that the settlement of America and the displacement of the Red Indians was odious. I wouldn't use the term red Indians. I think Indians is enough, but um, okay. It was odious and that the breaching of the old frontier he had seen for himself had only led to modern mass consumerism and the lack of spiritual values. He transcribed these views onto novels like Martian, Martian Time Slip, Clans of the Elfane Moon, and the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, where he sees the treatment of its natives, such as in Martian Time Slip, as unfair, and their occupations have become stale and unremunerative. In Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it provides escape from a decimated Earth, but is now such an odious place that it means that androids would rather come here. The frontier dream has become the stuff of dull reality. Uh, exactly right, I think, Richard. I, I have no nothing really to add to it. I mean, you're you're saying some of this stuff better than I would say it. Yeah, he's against colonialism certainly, and it's it changes in the 1950s. It's it's kind of this more American revolutionary narrative where you have the frontier against the against the mother country. But it really is in those works that you mentioned that the native population becomes a bigger issue. But I would mention a few works that do introduce this a little bit earlier, such as, well, at least Tony and the Beatles deals with uh, that. And I would also say um, Expendable is a post-colonial story in a lot of ways, although you kind of have to squeeze that one a little bit to get there. Yeah, someday I'm going to get back to like the series. Uh, I'm going to write a write a second essay or a second episode on on the on history and the frontier and these questions. And I'll look specifically at some of these works from the mid '60s in more detail and, and begin to analyze the relationship with the with the natives of these in these settings and the nature of the frontier in those those settings. But yeah, they generally become stale and unremunerative, as you put it. Um, now, of course, in the Kraken space, it's still a way out. It's, it's still a necessary way to to get humanity out of a, a kind of a, almost a high-level equilibrium trap, if you will. Um, or a Malthusian crisis is probably the more common way of, of, of talking about it. So, anything else to say about this? Oh, Clans of the Elfane Moon, though. I, I think there's something creative there. I don't think it's completely banal on Elfane moons partially because you have this wonderful diversity of, of, of points of view because of all this, these mental illnesses uh, now I'll, I'll have a lot more to say about that work when we when we get to it but okay you talked about upon the dull earth in your comments and, and I'll be taking it up now so thank you so much Richard for your comments and keep making them you almost always add something that I miss or that I choose to neglect or something I'm not really focused on and that's really great um, that you add that I mean you you have a, this you're much more interested in the kind of the spiritualism and the spirituality as 
a factor in Dick's stories, which is something I kind of downplay. That's that's why this particular episode is my, you know, I'm not quite sure what to do with it. I've always been troubled by the story Upon the Dull Earth. But for, okay, let's just get into this. Um, but Upon the Dull Earth was published in November 1954 in Beyond Fantasy Fiction. So it's a fantasy journal it's, or magazine. It's not science fiction. Typically, and it's Beyond Fantasy Fiction, which sounds from the title even more speculative than just uh, like a journal of fantasy but i would have to look it up to know what exactly was its nature um, but you can find it in the third volume of the collected works of philip k dick uh, the second variety um, volume and this actually used to be the name of the third volume of the collected stories though um, it was it was changed when second variety was moved in as the title story and i don't know why it was the second variety was written much earlier it should have probably been on the first volume of the book i i think it got moved because they wanted a a lot of these get moved because of movies they, they want it associated with a particular movie and second variety was made into a movie but it wasn't called second variety and unless you're a philip dick fan you wouldn't probably have even know about that movie in those cases, so I don't know. Maybe just because it's such a it's such a good story, it's been anthologized a lot. A lot of people would have come across the story, even if they weren't diehard Philip Dick readers. But anyways, that became the title, and upon the dull earth was pushed out. All right, so this plot of this story. So Sylvia is leading her fiance through the yard, and they're kind of running. It's at night. She's urging him to hurry up because they're late. She orders Rick to empty all empty himself of all metal since the creatures they're going to meet don't like metal and then these winged white creatures surround sylvia and start to consume lamb's blood from this pail that she brought with her so there's it's like angels but they're drinking this this lamb's blood uh, now the religious we're right in the beginning of the story and we got all those religious symbolism and and metaphors the lump lamb's blood right jesus being associated with the the shepherd the lamb who was slaughtered in some some that's that's a that i remember that from christianity um, but the angels these creatures look like angels so rick manages to get sylvia away from the creatures and she's quite terrified at what she's witnessing and after consuming the lambs of blood they disperse back into their world it's kind of like they're extra dimensional beings almost rick warns her about drawing the creatures to her but sylvia acknowledges the danger but she's really enamored with just the beauty of, of these creatures and how, how wonderful they look. Rick calls her a witch for drawing them in, but she responds as she's a saint. So we got more and more levels of, of religious language here, right? The, we got the image of the angels. We got the images of the, of the lamb's blood. We have this, these extra dimensional creatures like coming into our world and then leaving. Uh, we have a sacrifice. We have a witch or someone being called a witch and her response being that she's a saint, right? And of course, this line is always going to be confused, right? From every religious perspective, someone else's saint is, is a witch, right? Or a devil worshiper or, you know, a worshiper of demons. I think as Christianity spread around, around the world, they often would make the local gods demons, um, and this happened a little bit in the New World when we had all these Aztec gods and, and 
the Christians didn't necessarily say, say these didn't exist, but sometimes they would say that they're demons or devils or something. And that's why, you know, you've been tricked, right? And you should join the good side. So this witch saint dilemma is kind of interesting. So back home with her family and husband, Sylvia tries to explain that she's actually in this long line of saints who could draw these creatures into the world. So it's almost like a craft, it's almost like almost a Lovecraftian tradition, if you will. And there might be some Lovecraftian influences in here. This idea that there's certain special bloodlines or special connections, special traditions that are carried on through family. It's something that Lovecraft dealt with a lot. Now, these creatures' desire for blood inspired many myths. And some of these myths are the bloodletting of saints or the Valkyries and certainly angels. These creatures once lived on Earth but died out. She tells them when they die, when they die, they'll become, we, they will become ghosts. We'll all become ghosts like them. While Sylvia is obsessed with this idea of this metamorphosis into a ghost, Rick is mostly worried about his, you know, his, you know, his relationship with Sylvia. So Rick goes into the basement with the intention of destroying his wife's refrigeration and pump system. And this is where she's storing all this blood, right? So she's got this elaborate system uh, that's pre preserving this blood, which she's using to feed these, these creatures. She hopes that this will end her experiments with these monsters. Sylvia interrupts and again tries to explain that he does not, that she doesn't want to be a worm anymore, but like a caterpillar transformed into a higher level of existence. So like caterpillars are, are creative and good because they, they start in one thing and they become something else with wings obviously so like these creatures they seem to have wings but she doesn't want to be like a worm that like the human existence is a worm you're just a worm and then you die and that, that's all and of course worms feed on the dead i don't i don't think caterpillars do well flies do and then they kind of become something else they metamorphosize i guess from pupa stage to to adult stage but anyways you, you get the point so she shows rick the coffin that she will use when she's ready to make her transformation. And she's, she's already planning ahead. Now imagine if you're married to a person like this and she starts out with these weird habits and then you experience she's with these creatures and then she starts talking about a metamorphosis and she's like, here's my coffin and here's what's going to happen to me. You know, it's, it's kind of certainly very frightening. Sylvia at this moment realizes that the creatures are coming. They're attracted by blood. Then she splits, she actually spilt this blood after pricking a finger. And before she can stop the bleeding, the creatures come in and consume her body. They destroy much of the basement and they leave Sylvia's remains charred and shriveled. Later, out in the place where Sylvia called the creatures earlier, Rick is attempting to do the same thing, demanding that they speak to him. And he is accusing them of being greedy by taking Sylvia before she was ready. The white shapes appear and hear... And he hears Sylvia speak to him. She explains that it's too dangerous to come back, that the form she would, she would come in has been lost, and that time moves much more quickly where she is, that she really can't be reunited with her body anymore. When he returns to the house, Sylvia's father challenges Rick's intention. One of Sylvia's sisters, Betty Lou, blames her for being a witch and tells Rick that she got what she deserved. Get what she deserved. So she's the more religious sister who, who saw what she was doing as, as devil worship. While confronting Rick, Betty Lou's form changes into Sylvia. Sylvia begins to explain the diff experience on the other side. So now we have a bit of like spiritualism almost where you know, spiritualism was a fad in the 19th century. 
from England and then it became very popular in the US. But this was the basic idea here was that you would um what do I want to say? I'm distracted by the um, garbage music. Give me a minute. Okay, so uh, oh, just sorry about that, but the that music is the. I think I explained this before, but if you're just joining this podcast, that music is the garbage music. So every day the garbage truck comes comes through neighborhoods and they play this music, so people know to get there. You're not supposed to leave your garbage uh, on the on the street, you know, for people to pick up. You have to actually throw it into the garbage truck yourself because that's just letting people know that it's that it's here Um, but anyways um so sylvia takes over the body of betty lou Uh, and sylvia begins to explain the experience on the other side when she realizes that she was brought back by the taking of another form and in the living room other members of the family also are transforming into sylvia as well as sylvia moves from body to body she takes over their consciousness and their form and this attempt to get closer to Rick, Sylvia is replicating herself. Rick flees the house and begins driving. He notices that one of the passengers in the car in front of him is Sylvia. So it's kind of like if you remember the Matrix, right, where uh, Agent Smith can, you know, spread his consciousness and spread his form to ch- track and chase people. So it's kind of like that. Um, but this ver- is Sylvia is appearing everywhere. Now, later on, a waitress is in a filling station diner turns into Sylvia, along with many of the passengers who and rest, people at the restaurant. Continuing on his travel, Rick picks up a hitchhiker and tells him that he will dr- that he'll drive him all the way to Chicago. At first, the young hitchhiker is frightened by Rick's erratic behavior and his speeding and his just overall goofiness. But eventually he speaks to him familiarly. And soon the hitchhiker is also Sylvia. He kicks out the, this hitchhiker Sylvia from the car and imagines that no matter where they go, he will see variants of Sylvia. A police officer who questions him becomes yet another Sylvia avatar. And as Rick returns to his apartment, he looks into his bathroom mirror and he sees yet another vision, another version of Sylvia. So in the end, Sylvia is alone in a world populated by copies of herself. So that's the story. So, yeah, if you think back to what Richard was saying about this story, that this attempt to kind of disrupt the world we live in and our systems create something horrific and, and monstrous, right? Basically, a, a form of solipsism is what is the end result of of her manipulation of of these other realms and these other, you know, happenings. So it was public, as I said, it was pub- this story was published in a fantasy magazine, Beyond Fantasy Fiction. We're not given a clear answer as to what these white winged beings are. Are they aliens? Are they extra dimensional beings? Are they ghosts, as Sylvia once called them? Uh, are they humans who are capable of making this transition to their world? Because, of course, Sylvia is not able to do this very effectively because on her way back, she, she disrupts things and basically creates the world as one massive copy of herself. Perhaps they are ghosts or energy beings or aliens. These are all things that Dick has written about. Now, whatever these things are, they seem to resist naturalistic explanations. And this isn't the first time Dick has dealt with these kind of creatures. They've he's, He did it, for instance, in the Infinites that had these energy creatures. I don't think he deals with ghosts anywhere else, though. But aliens from another dimension or energy beings is, is kind of in... Um, Dick's purview, uh, according to his other stories. But even the setting of the story is rather bizarre. We have Rick, who's enamored with Sylvia, but 
Sylvia has learned how to contact these beings. She begins to see herself as part of this long tradition that people have been aware of these beings, including all these myth makers and especially saints. But, you know, no one in her family really seems to follow it. So where does she get this tradition from? Did she get it from books or or from someone else she met? It strongly suggests that these beings are the explanation for people's encounters with saints or with angels. On Earth, however, they're not eager to really help people. They're, they're kind of malevolent and vicious, and they're eager to consume humans' blood, lamb's blood being the most tasty. And the symbolism there is quite um, meaningful. Sylvia's family seems to know about her experiments with these other beings and eventually take her tragic death in slide. And that's a really bizarre thing, too. It's like... She just died in this horrific way, and the, the family just doesn't really care about it. So there's something about the setting that's really outworldly, more so than many other Dick stories. I mean, he does this from time to time, but this whole setting is a bit weird. Uh, in fact, if, if you would have given me the story without Philip Dick's name on it, I probably, you know, before I read any of his stuff, I probably wouldn't have guessed it was one of his stories. I, I probably wouldn't have been able to say who it was or who it might have been, but I never would have said Philip K. Dick. It's just doesn't even read like him in a lot of ways it's it's just the whole story the whole setting and the things that happen just come off to me as really bizarre in the final pages of the story either this creature is attempting to bring sylvia back through people that rick encounters and eventually this is turning everyone she encounters into a variant of sylvia uh, or perhaps the other way we can always read these stories uh knowing it's a Philip Dick story, is that maybe he's driven insane by grief and the bizarre experiences he has, including those interactions with Sylvia's family, are just results of his insanity. But if we read it more literally, Sylvia has taken over these forms in her attempt to be closer to Rick and to come back into this world and come back to this world at the point where she had the most meaning, which is with Rick. In some ways, we can put this story, if we want, alongside Dick's other efforts at, at explanations for religious experiences. We got, for instance, Prominent Author, which extems, attempts to explain revelation. The Infinites, in a way, tries to explain godlike beings as a product of evolution. The Skull explain, is in an effort to use time travel to explain resurrection. So there's a series of these stories. Here we have Dick's answer to the claims of people who who have seen angels. But of these, Upon the Dull Earth is not very satisfying because it, you know, it doesn't really give explanations to these creatures. We, they seem to just be living another plane of existence. So basically you're saying these gods are just powerful aliens. And, and that's done before, like in the present for Pat. So in that sense, it's not that original. One, you know, I think where kind of the thematic heart of this story is, is in this exploration of the burdens of grief and guilt. Um, we could remove the creatures altogether and just take Rick's love for Sylvia. Take it as a story of love, a love story. Sylvia is, or Rick is gradually becoming insane. Uh, Sylvia is becoming insane through love. So their relationship itself is, is maddening. And that's one reason maybe everything is weird. You have these weird creatures and the lamb's blood. I mean, who gets lamb's blood? How would you even get it? Right, unless you lived on a sheep farm. That itself is bizarre. I mean, maybe in the 1950s you could go to the butcher and get lamb's blood. At, you know, it's just She seemed to have a lot of it. Or the way the family interacts, all the kind of weirdness and the weird people in the diner. It's all just an explanation of, of the madness of love. 
So Rick, maybe his efforts to say don't do this is almost trying to get her out of love to try to push her back to the sanity of kind of normal living. And when she dies in an explosion caused by her jury rigged refrigeration system, Rick is overcome with guilt and horror and sadness. And then he starts to see his lost love everywhere uh, in, in the world. Her family comes to terms with Sylvia's death quickly, knowing that she had gone insane or had taken blame for her strange basement activities. You know, they just got used to it or they kind of already considered her gone. So, I mean, those are some interpretive options for Upon the Dull Earth. Um, I do think it has also this theme of, of, of disruption or a world going tragically wrong, uh, which we've seen a lot in, in his works. But it's just an overall, it's a really weird story. It, it's not one of my favorites. It's, it's one of, a, you know, in a way, it's, you could call it kind of a spiritual story, a religious story, but the images are all injected the wrong way. They're all infected in a way. Like the angels are actually kind of weird monsters and the sacrifice is actually just consumption. It's just this act of greedy consumption. I and mean, in fact, maybe you have a bit of consumerism critique in here. Um, the follower is crazy, right? Or, you know, the religious, the most religious person is the craziest one, right? And then this effort to come back to the world turn, turns it into a solipsism, really, where everyone is Sylvia. And maybe that's what a religious delusion is, right? Where you see everything through the terms of what you believe. And then in this sense, the story is pre foreshadowing a novel like Eye in the Sky, which is carries on this theme where a religious zealot or an ideological zealot is always going to see the world through their eyes and never be able to see it objectively from, from a, a, an outside point of view. And the result is you end up with really weird realities, you know, and we all can think of people who, if the world really existed as they imagine it exists, it'd be a pretty horrible place. And that's sort of what we start to get here with, with Sylvia. So there's a lot of ways to go with this story. So it's really worth looking at. I think it's certainly an important story in his, among his works and, and, depending on how you look at his career, it is kind of a turning point. And, and it's, uh, it's just, it's fascinating. Certainly there, I can say that about it at least. Um, so I guess that does it for this episode. Um, thank you so much for listening. I'll, I'll be back next time with another Philip K. Dick story. I, I don't have my list with me right now. I'm not sure what it will be, but, um, we're getting to the end of 1950, the 1954 stories. Um, so anyways, thank you so much for listening. If you have comments, please leave them below. If, if they, if I move to do this in the next episode, I'll, I will respond to them and, and give you some of my thoughts on it. Um, I would love to hear from, from more of you. So, um, until next time, keep reading Philip K. Dick and I'll, I'll, I'll be back shortly. Come my tired thoughts once That leaving dies, that leaving dies. Till